Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Okay, so here's the table of contents for today's episode. And fair warning, it includes a kind of a long introduction. First, I have some corrections to make about last week's episode when I talked about Catholics and my, quote, Protestant rosary. Then I will introduce our guest for the week. Then I will have some comments about the passing of Christian author Rachel Held Evans. Then we will have the bulk of the episode. And then... I will be answering a patron question, as I have been fond of doing recently. This week's question is from Tim, and he asks, how do you navigate conversations with conservative friends or family as you deconstruct? Again, that's after the main interview at the end of the episode. Now to the corrections from last week. I have to thank Christine for emailing me and making me aware of two errors I made, one of which I really should have known better and I should have avoided it, and one that I did not know at all. First, the obvious blunder, I said that Catholics pray to Mary. They don't, and I knew this. They ask Mary to pray for them to Jesus Christ, and in fact, all the words in that prayer are taken from Scripture directly. It's the same thing as when they uh, pray to the saints, or (laughs) they don't pray to the saints, They they are asking the saints to pray for them, to join them in their prayer. I've even made this distinction many times in conversation defending Catholics, so to speak, to fellow Protestants, 
So that one I knew. That was lazy of me. Uh, the second one I did not know, uh, but Christine told me that Catholics have other prayers that they use the rosary for as well. I'll just quote from her email. Quote, the second form is called the Divine Mercy Chaplet. This is a reflection on Christ's passion in combination with the Eucharist. Other forms of rosary prayer involve simply the Jesus prayer and the Lord's prayer with slow, intentional breathing. So that, end quote, that sounds a little bit kind of like what I was talking about, and I didn't know that that was already in the tradition. So mea maxima culpa, bonus points if you got that pun. Feel free to email me when I get stuff wrong. Seriously, there are uh, some really interesting patron-only episodes coming up, actually, with some listeners who've not felt like I've handled particular issues with sufficient nuance, and we're going to talk that out with microphones and release it to patrons. Specifically, there's one coming up about single predestination versus double predestination, and another one actually about inerrancy. Speaking of inerrancy, let me reintroduce you to today's guest, Bonnie Christian. You remember her from episode six, if you were listening that long ago. She wrote a book called A Flexible Faith. It is exactly the book that I started writing a couple years ago, but she actually finished it, and I didn't. And she did a great job. When I say it's the same book, I mean I started writing a book about all the various options for how you might think of a bunch of big doctrinal or biblical questions that Christians argue about. So each chapter is about a different topic. We did atonement theories back on episode six. So we went through all of the atonement theories and she just did a great job uh, and I wanted to have her back and I'll probably have her again in the future. Um, but one thing that needs mentioning with a little pontification on its heels, at one point in our interview, Bonnie mentions Rachel Held Evans and her recent book, Inspired. This was recorded before Rachel tragically and unexpectedly passed away at just 37 years old. Um, and I wanted to say a little bit about that. I hadn't read much of her stuff, uh, except a little bit of the year of biblical womanhood, but some of her interviews on various podcasts were quite helpful to me at various times in my faith. And I really value what she did. One aspect of which I think of as basically being the tip of the spear and taking a lot of conservative evangelical heat that others, including myself, but especially I think female theologians and female writers would not have to take later on. Um, I had been meaning to read her book, Searching for Sunday, and now I definitely will read that. And uh, I just wanted to make sure that nobody thought we were just kind of cavalierly throwing out her name in our conversation, uh, you know, as if we were unaware of her passing. But I do have one thought, I guess, and I don't want to over-theologize what for some of you will and should be just like a moment of grief. But when someone passes away so young, leaving behind a family that includes like a 10-month-old child, Christians in different schools of thought will have different things to say about it. Many of you were raised in communities that would say, God took her for a reason. And within that group, there are sort of two distinctions we might make. Uh, we are confident that we could determine that reason. Perhaps her book sales will go up and her early death will make her impact on the world greater in the end. But to believe that, you would need to also believe that her best books have already been written, that she wouldn't write stuff in the future that would be even better and reach even more people on its own merit. 
Um, and then there's a darker version I won't spend any time with that says they know the reason God took her and it was to get her out of the way because she's a false prophet or some bullshit like that. But the other subset of that first group might say, look, God took her for a reason, but we will probably never understand what that reason is. However, we should accept that God always does things for good reasons. Now, obviously, I think the second is more uh, reasonable than the first. I should stop saying reason, uh, I think is more likely to be accurate than the first view. But either way, these these views emphasize God's sovereignty. Either God actually preordains every event in the universe, or at least God knows what will happen and allows it all to happen. And on these views, the future is determined, whether or not it appears that way to us, and God's plan will eventually unfold. It's God's plan. Uh, but there is another way of looking at things, and the common term for it is open theism, which, by the way, will get its own episode soon with Tom Ord and Trip Fuller as double guests. Uh, but open theism claims that the future is in some way genuinely and actually open. God does not know, nor does God predetermine all future events. And this leaves open the possibility that God did not in any way or on the whole prefer that Rachel would pass away when she did, but that she passed away as a result of a whole bunch of causal factors, including the way that bacteria grow and propagate, the level of medical science at the time she had her illness, genetic factors. I mean, there's a thousand of these forces if you tally them all up. But in short, there is a lot of chance involved. Most people will die later, closer to the average life expectancy of a particular culture at a particular time, but some will be outliers. They'll live significantly longer or shorter than average. Another way to phrase this is, God created an orderly law-like universe. Things basically happen according to these laws. And Rachel's example is an outlier, which of course makes it all the more tragic. But here's the theological difference between the two approaches. On the second approach, you aren't left asking, why did God take her? You might ask instead, since she's gone, how might God work in spite of this? What might be God asking of her community, asking of me? Where might we go from here? Of course, these questions come after a proper time of grieving, one in which we don't simply use platitudes like she's in a better place to ignore our actual pain. But after a healthy time to grieve, our theology really will affect the way we process unexpected and unfair losses like this one. So that's my little homily for today. Um, on to today's episode in which we tackle the topic of biblical inerrancy with Bonnie Christian. Bonnie, thank you so much for being back on the show. For having me back. It seems like we should start here, and I'll quote from your book. All scripture is God-breathed, the Apostle Paul wrote to his friend and student Timothy, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. On this, Christians agree, but ask them to explain what it means to say that God breathed the Bible— and how we should interpret what it says, and that agreement instantly dissolves. What do you want to say about that? Oh, man, um, <laughs> it was the first sort of issue-based chapter that I, I 
placed in the book. And I did that because it so many of the questions that we have about other theological issues really come back to this. Totally. Um, that, you know, a, a lot of times we may be disagreeing about something in theology and then not really realizing that sort of our the, the foundation of our disagreement is that we, we're looking at the Bible differently and, and we're looking at its authority differently. Yeah, I remember a time in my life where I was talking with a friend and I was like, you know what? I really think that God wants me to come to a position on evolution and homosexuality. I don't know if that's really what God wanted for me at the time. But anyway, <laughs> I said that to my friend and my friend said, I think that those are both going to come down to the text. Like, how do you take the text? How do you read it? What do you think is going on there? And unless you answer that, you can't really answer either of those questions. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the case in a lot of things. And I think, you know, different Christian traditions have such different approaches to the Bible. People in other Christian traditions might have started with a, a different question. Even my selection of that, I think, is giving a hint on, on yeah. where I stand. <laughs> a, ca- a Catholic book like yours would not probably start with inerrancy of scripture. You know, it would right. start something about the church magisterium or the Pope or, you know, the Eucharist or something like that. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of places you could start, and that would by no means be the obvious choice for for every Christian. Is it worth talking at all about the fact that the historical person, Paul himself, would not have thought that the word scripture in 2 Timothy would have applied to his own letters? Is it worth talking about the fact that the Gospels were not even probably composed at this point? They didn't even exist yet? Or are there good arguments for thinking that this line of thinking does apply to the New Testament as well as to the Hebrew Bible, which is what Paul himself would have certainly thought he was talking about? Yeah, I think it is worth talking about. And you're right that that Paul would have had the Old Testament in mind. To, to my knowledge, I don't think that we have any evidence that he ever encountered any of like the Gospels, for example. Right. That said, there is that passage in, I believe it's First Peter, that refers to Paul's writings as scripture. Mm. And so... We have even, you know, within the canon itself, that very early indication that while Paul may not have sat down and thought like, I'm going to write some scripture today, very early on, it comes to include, uh, comes to be accepted as scripture within uh, the the Christian community. Yeah, and I suppose if you have any kind of a well-formed understanding of like how scripture is canonized and like if you have any sort of doctrine of the Holy Spirit leading the church to accept certain parts of the Bible, then you've got to think, well, the same process with the Old Testament is also there with the New Testament. Even if you think that process is imperfect, just even from a secular perspective, it's still kind of the same thing going on that like the Jewish people sort of figured out what was in their Bible. And then the Christians sort of figured out what was in their Bible. And it's basically the same process. Yeah. And I mean, that that reliance on or sort of trust that the the Holy Spirit had was playing a role in this, that it's not just a human decision, though right. certainly there, there is, you know, a lot of human consensus and input in this. That's not strictly a historical argument, of course, right? And so, you know, there's a sense in which I don't necessarily expect someone who's not a Christian to be super convinced by that. But speaking among Christians, you know, when we, we, we do have that assumption that, that the Holy Spirit guided the, the process of determining what, what went into Scripture, that makes it a lot easier to look at something like this Timothy thing and say, like, yeah, Paul wasn't thinking of his own writings at the time, but that doesn't mean that it can't apply to, to Scripture as a whole as we have it today. 
Yeah, I, I'm not saying that a non-Christian would be convinced by like the fact that Paul said that 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 means that it is inspired or anything. I just mean like it's not like two radically different processes are going on in terms of the acceptance of what books count, even from a totally non-theistic viewpoint. It, it's still kind of the same sorting mechanism, and they're praying and they're getting in councils. You know, it's all it's all the same mm-hmm. thing. So you talk about at the beginning of your chapter our kind of modern precision-based mindset. In the book, you say that you can be confident that if you show up at Rite Aid at 7.56 and Rite Aid closes at 8 p.m., you'll be fine. But that is a new phenomenon in human history. Yeah, it's it's super new. And it's strange, I think, for us to, to rem- and difficult for us to remember that because you know, our our world is so clock-based, so precision-based, you know, especially now that we all have cell phones, like we can't even, you know, have a disagreement like over a beer and be like, well, I don't know, I guess we just can't know. Like, no, we're going to look it up and we're going to find out what the exact right answer is. Right. And so because that that assumption is so ingrained in like the, the very basic function of our everyday life, it is difficult, I think, for us to remember that most of the world today and most of the world historically has not ever expected or operated with that kind of precision. The way that we think about not just time, but things like whether an account is true or factual, whether it's like scientifically accurate, the degree of of factual accuracy and precision that we take for granted as normal and just sort of the, the baseline of like, you know, being honest and realistic about the world has not existed for very long or in many places. So to connect that to where we're going to go, that that really connects to sort of the idea of inerrancy versus infallibility, right? Where there's, it's kind of like in how much detail and with how much precision do we expect the text to be accurate? And and so is that the motivation for sort of uh, calling to mind how new this, this kind of precision is? Yeah, especially if, as I was, you're raised in a context that teaches inerrancy, which says that you know, the Bible is, is true and also factually accurate in, in everything that it communicates. Especially if, if you that's what's familiar to you, it, you tend to think of it as like, you know, this is the longstanding traditional position. Right. This is like, you know, how the church has always thought about the scripture. And then it's only in recent modern times that, you know, people have sort of like uh, slackened their approach. Right. But the inerrancy as we think of it now, where it is this very precise thing, where it's all about like complete historical and scientific accuracy, that precision mindset is, is pretty new. And the inerrancy that we have now is also in that sense, pretty new and, and pretty much like a post scientific revolution sort of thing. Right. It's worth noting also that I think in most religious communities, most religious leaders, when they are arguing for the particular views of their tradition will by default talk as if or say explicitly that what they believe is what the church has more or less always believed. So that's just kind of like a psychological fact when we get in groups or when we have authority structures. But then in this particular case, uh, there is really sort of empirical evidence that that's that's actually not accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even some of the quite early theologians, people like Origen, you have people talking about, you know, maybe the whole testament's an allegory. Like their their expectations are are very different yeah. from from what we might bring to the text. Yeah, isn't it Augustine who said of the Canaanite conquest like maybe it's mostly a metaphor for rooting sin out of a human heart 
And it's like, <laughs> I don't know if it was him, but it was some early church father. Yeah, yeah. I, I also do not remember exactly if, if that's who it was, but but that sort of interpretation of like saying, you know, here's a, a, a tricky, difficult thing in the Bible that, you know, we're not exactly sure how to deal with. Maybe it's an allegory. Super common, like yeah. early interpretive technique. So let's get into these terms, but it, it's worth noting that terminology around this topic is notoriously slippery. And I think that's especially true of your second category, infallible. People use that word from my own reading. That seems to have like all these various uses, different denominations, like officially use the word infallible and officially mean different things by it uh, in mutually exclusive ways. But yes, for the- and inerrancy as well. I mean, right. I, I would say that I've had professors who would affirm inerrancy because that's sort of the, the school, the school's baseline. But then if you ask them to explain it, it, it would come out as something that I would characterize as infallibility. Exactly. And so, it's very messy. Yeah, I think even Pete Enns in his early work said he's like, "I'll be an inerrantist if I can define it." Like, there's a four, <laughs> there's a four views book on inerrancy, and he is the most liberal of the four authors, and he claims to be an inerrantist in that book. But what you know, but it's like obviously not in the same way the other people are. So you have collated all of those terms and sort of given three basic categories in the book. I find this very helpful: inerrant, infallible inspired. Let's go through these one at a time and just you define your terms. So on your terms, what does inerrant mean? All right. So um, for inerrant to, because as you mentioned, it is so fuzzy. I went with the definition from a, a 1978 document called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which is widely accepted. I think a lot of people who, who say that they are inerrantists will say like, yeah, that's a pretty good Good definition yeah, of what I believe. Yeah, certainly Baptists will will take that. Mm-hmm. Like Southern Baptist Convention will take it. I think like Gospel Coalition folks would say, yes, yes. that's what we mean. So that that's, that's right. a good bookmark. Yeah. Okay. So the Chicago Statement says, quote, being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teachings, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. And so the, the Chicago Statement does specify that they're talking about, like, in the original text. So yes, there's there's possibilities of, you know, some some slight shifts over, you know, long, long transmission and translation um, over the centuries, but... But for the most part, you know, what we have is, is pretty much you know, what God intended it to be. And so you have this, you know, multi-part thing where it's not just uh, that the Bible is true in, in regards to matters of, that are explicitly concerning faith, like, you know, the life of Christ or doctrinal matters. But it's also completely accurate and truthful in matters concerning history and, and science. And uh, that, of course, involves creation and this sort of thing. That bit about not just things related to faith and salvation is going to come up because that's almost always part of the infallibility definition that's kind of conscribing the Bible's uh, perfectness or or whatever or sufficiency. A couple things I want to talk through on that inerrancy. So verbally inspired is an interesting phrase because it sounds really similar to dictated, but it's Mm -hmm. not dictated. Which, because dictation is the model of inspiration for the Quran and the Book of Mormon, for instance. That's official doctrine for those books, but that's never been official doctrine in any major set of Christianity. So, is are they being slippery? Is there what's the difference between dictation and verbally inspired? 
Yeah, it's hard to say, and I don't know that I could give like a fair <laughs> representation yeah. of it because they're not saying that God was like you know whispering a dictation in Paul's ear, and Paul is like involuntarily writing it out. Right, and you know I think it, it's very difficult to make a case for something like that, especially with someone like Paul, who on occasion will explicitly say like, this is me "By the speaking. way, this is just me, not God." Right. The idea of verbal inspiration has to do with like the specific word choices are from God, and so exactly how that works. Again, I'm, I'm not sure. Okay, I could to be charitable, we might say, say it in a way that would be fair. Yeah, well, to be charitable, we might say it's something like Paul chooses the words, but God ensures that Paul does not choose any words that end up being inaccurate in Paul's language, sure. yes. correctly translated, you know, or something like that. Right. Another sub aspect of this is you get inerrancy ends up saying in its original autograph, right? So that's whatever Paul wrote down. That's whatever the first person who wrote down you know, the part of Genesis that we have now, uh, that gets really complicated with the Old Testament because a lot of stuff wasn't written down for a long time. And so did God make sure that people preserved it in their memory or is God making sure that the final editors and redactors, but at some, somewhere along the line, there's a layer where God goes, I'm not going to let any false words in. This is the official version. Yeah. And so, yeah, there is a little bit of wiggle room there in terms of, you know, as things are copied over the centuries, some some variations creep in. Maybe our, our translation as humans is, you know, we strive to do the best we can, but it's not perfect. There is some space for things that are, are not, you know, exactly what, what God intended, but it's it's not a lot of space. It's, yeah. it's pretty minimal. Yeah. And so the second question, which flows from that is, if that's true, then history, same as salvation. So it's like God cannot tell a lie, right? So God would have no reason to mislead God's people about faith in Christ. And equally, why would God ever mislead them about some historical event that happened? If it says 2 million Hebrew slaves left Egypt, then it's, by God, it's 2 million. This is important because there is some point at which in the writing or development or editing process that God ensures no errors are in there. That means any number that comes through, any sequence of events, anything that appears to be scientific, it all passes through that that miracle filter, basically, of the truth filter, that at some point God ensures no falsehoods. And so that's why you get young earth creationism and this kind of stuff. Is that right? Well, and it's it's very much tied, and you got it this little, it's very much tied to the character of God. Like, mm-hmm. you know, by, by nature, God, you know, is always truthful. God never errs. God can't be wrong. And so when you have a God like this presenting, you know, his written revelation to his people, well, of course, you know, he's going to give a revelation that also doesn't err and that also is never untruthful or wrong. And so, you know, it, it just sort of flows from the idea of, you know, if this is what we know God is like. Well, then it, it makes it only makes sense that this is what his book would be like. So your next category is infallible, but I think there's one in between that can can we talk about for a second? It, sure. seems, it seems like there's what I would call a literarily sophisticated inerrancy that says, if you can control for genre, then there are no errors. And so this this introduces like, well, you don't necessarily know what's poetry or not. You don't necessarily know what's meant to be allegory. For instance, we don't know all of the ancient literary genres of the Old Testament world. So perhaps... You know, if you read Noah as a type of Babylonian style myth, 
that is its literary genre and the people who originally heard it would have recognized that. They would have understood it as like a rags to riches story or a fish out of water story, the way that we recognize tropes and literary conventions. And so if you were to be able to account for all of that, which we can never do perfectly, we have faith that then there would be no errors. And that seems it's still closer to inerrancy. I mean, it's in between inerrancy and infallibility. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, there's I've only put in these three categories. They're very broad. Each one, I think, includes a, a significant degree of diversity. And yeah, I think with something like that, you're, you're getting to sort of the dividing line between yeah. infallibility and inerrancy. And in practice, your interpretation from each of those perspectives might not be, be terribly different. Right. I will say I don't think that that's typically the sort of inerrancy that you encounter. Oh, definitely certainly not. in the no. pews. <laughs> Um, But yeah, you can have that more, you know, sophisticated and uh, nuanced and allowing for ambiguity type of inerrancy with, you know, greater study in historical context. I'm thinking of people maybe like, and I'm not sure this would be true of them, but like John Walton at Wheaton or like Kevin Van Hooser, the philosopher, Mm -hmm. like, like people who are pretty conservative, but they're really quite sophisticated with literary genre. John Walton's whole thing about Genesis is like, is all about figuring out the genre here and looking at the Hebrew text and then assuming inerrancy, just like what would we expect this text to say to us if we get the genre right? So next up is infallible. What do you mean? And this this one was probably the hardest, I bet, to kind of collate because people give these really different definitions. But what do you call infallible? Yeah, there is a wide range. And People coming from the inspired perspective, I think a lot of times will tend to conflate inerrant and infallible. Right. Like there was a a controversy on Twitter, a great place for controversies, um, (laughs) (laughs) sometime within the last year where I I believe it was the account of Union Seminary in New York City, you know, very much going to be in the inspired camp, was using infallible and inerrant interchangeably. Right. Um, And people were like, you know, we get how from your perspective, these seem real close. But if you've moved from one to the other, there is a big difference. Um, Yeah. So infallibility, as I summarized it, would mean that scripture will not fail us, that it is trustworthy, that it is communicating truth on all matters of faith and practice. So everything that you need to know to follow Jesus, you can get that from scripture. You know, salvation, how to to, to live as a Christian, scripture covers this stuff. Uh, the, the historical and and scientific stuff, it, it depends, right? So like something like the life of Christ, especially when we're getting to, you know, the death and resurrections and especially the teachings of Christ, um, we're going to expect a high degree of, of historical accuracy there because it is so concerned with faith and practice. Something like, you know, was it exactly two million Israelites who who are freed from Egypt? Less important to, to our day-to-day faith. And so, you know, that, that could be, um, you know, less accurate, whether because of, of genre or because of, you know, miscommunication or whatever the case may be that we're not we're not putting the same modern standards of accuracy on those parts of the text that are not crucial to you know sort of the the core of the faith and living as a christian yeah so it's going to become clear how i keep finding it difficult to figure out if i'm in infallibility camp or inspired camp because mm. even here some of this stuff is slippery like like i was just listening back to you and thinking Okay, so I love the idea that scripture is sufficient, 
Like one of the things that when I've read about infallibility that is really stressed is like you don't need more. You don't also need a guru. You know, you mm-hmm. don't also mm-hmm. need to meditate. You don't also need to know about other religions. Like there is enough here for you if someone reads it to you or if you're literate to like follow Christ. And mm-hmm. I'm that makes me sing. Like I love that. But then I do have this follow-up question which is like but how much accuracy is needed for that? Like if we think that the Holy Spirit has guided the process of the church to figure out what needs to be in the final canon, even if they got something wrong, but like it worked and it helped Christians worship, it's just not it's not clear what that level of accuracy would need to be for it to be sufficient for salvation and I mean, certain things you would w- couldn't be wrong. Like it couldn't be that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You know, there's there's right. some yeah. kind of basics, but like I don't. And know. I think I think where you draw that line is going to be a, a big source of sort of the diversity of opinion yeah. within this viewpoint, right? And so I think you can have people, as we were just saying, who are are in the infalli- infallibility position, but are coming close up to the inerrancy side of things, where they're going to say like you tend to take you know, a larger portion of scripture as, you know, necessary to faith and practice. And then you're going to have people who are, are pretty close to, to tipping over the line into the inspired camp where they're going to say like, yeah. no, it's a, it's a pretty narrow set of things. Can you just say anything you've got about the fact that there are four gospels that are not harmonized in terms of the infallibility position? Like how would an infallibilist mm. think about, like, like if anything, so so we know in Christian tradition, someone did try to harmonize them. The church sort of roundly rejected that. But it it is sort of like maybe the inerrantist camp that wants a harmonious reading. Like an inerrantist would probably be committed to the idea that if there are surface differences in the narrative, you know, if one gospel says Jesus waited around for a day after he rose from the dead and the other says 40, there's probably some way we need to interpret one or 40. Maybe one's a symbolic number, you know, like, but they're going to, yeah. they're going to need to really line up. There needs to be a fact of the matter. And the Bible only teaches that fact. If we understood it right, the infallibilist, now they've got a little bit of room so they can take these gospel differences. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think that there's not that same necessity to try to smooth out all the apparent contradictory details. You brought up the resurrection. Like, if we had a gospel that clearly explicitly says, no, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and the other three said, yes, he did, that would be a real problem, including for the infallibilist. Yes. But things like, you know, I think I used the example of the story that we have in Matthew and Mark where Jesus sends out, I think it's the 72 disciples to be preaching and his packing list varies from book to book, like in pretty clearly contradictory ways. And if you're an inerrantist, then yeah, I think you have to do um, you know, you have to say well, you know, maybe uh, there, there's maybe there's been a, a mistranslation at some point, and in the original version, these were harmonious, or maybe you know there's some way of harmonizing these things. The infallibilist though can just say, you know, the 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 point that Jesus is making comes through regardless of what he told them to take or not take, and so we don't need to try to harmonize this to understand the the tr- the theological truth that's being communicated here. Yeah, Dale Martin, who's an Episcopal New Testament. Uh, scholar who just retired from Yale, he actually wants to go further and say 
these four different versions, and he would even say there's a Jesus of Revelation as well, mm-hmm. they are different for a reason. Like they're actually portraying different aspects of Christ that in our experience as Christians are true sometimes and not true other times. Hmm. And so he wouldn't be able to do that if he was an inerrantist, but if he was an infallibilist, he could take that tack, that reasoning. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely just as a general rule makes it easier to not be discomforted by the diversity of voices yeah. in the in the scripture. To, that And the Gospels are a great example, but even something like, you know, it's hard to, to read Galatians and James like to, to, there is a tension there, right? Like I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think it's a contradiction, but there is a tension there, and it's yeah. that tension that gets you, you know, Galatians fan Martin Luther trying to throw out James, and yeah. so having having the the infallible infallible approach, or or really, I would say anything but like a strict, unsophisticated inerrancy makes it easier to deal with that. Galatians James is of course faith and works. Right, uh, they, there are passages that on the in their basic English syntax seem to be saying almost exactly the opposite thing mm-hmm. of each other. Before we move on, so if inerrancy is the official position of, let's say, the Southern Baptist Convention and probably most of your American conservative Protestant denominations would, would take the Chicago statement of inerrancy, infallibility would be the official position of Roman Catholicism, uh, Greek and Russian Orthodoxy, Episcopalianism and Anglicanism. Uh, what else? Probably, probably Methodism. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think like most of the mainline Protestants, again, exactly what they mean by the word is yes. going to vary. But yeah, this is kind of the big camp that that most of the the church historically has been in, and and, and certainly used to be in. Yeah, and certainly the way you've described it is consonant with the the Roman Catholic doctrine, which there we've got that's sixty percent of world Christians right there. So right, exactly. Uh, that, and that's one of the things that for me is a little bit insidious about the inerrantist camp is they really want, they really use church history as a, as a bludgeon oftentimes, whether or not they mean to as a polemical tool, you know, when they're talking about this and, and it's just kind of shocking when you realize that like 85% of the world's Christians don't officially hold that. Now it might be true that if you polled individual Catholics or individual Orthodox, you might get the kind of what John and I on our reconstruct podcast called naive inerrancy. And then we talked about a robust inerrancy, which is maybe that middle position I was talking with you about. So you might get that, but it's, it's not, not the, the official. official yeah. 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 Of really not of most Christians over time and not of most Christians living today. And that's just something I'm sensitive to because I don't I don't like it. It's kind of what this whole podcast is about is like you just can't deny the empirical facts. At, let's at least start there and acknowledge. Yeah, no, it it just feels very dominant, I think, to us in, in yes. the American context. And especially if you're like in sort of evangelicalism writ large, yeah. it's inescapable. Yeah. My body bangs and twitches this brown my tongue. Yes, you're right. This is not the normal transition music for the You Have Permission podcast. This is a song called In Stitches by the artist David Bazan. And I'm trying something new with this latest patron-only episode. If you guys like it, then I'll do more of these. Different tracks, different guests. But basically, I want to talk through some tracks from David Bazan's 2012 album, Curse Your Branches. And this week, I did that with my friend Bruce Freebie. Now, if you don't know who David Bazan is, he's the founder of the band Pedro the Lion. 
and he was one of the most influential voices in Christian independent music for about 15 years. In 2012, he officially and publicly left Christianity. This was kind of his breakup album with God, so to speak. In my own circles, this was a pretty big deal, something I've talked about a hundred times or more with friends over the years. And I wanted to go back through that record track by track, looking at lyrics and talking through the experience of that album coming out, also how it looks to us now seven years later. So, the first of these is live now for patrons, and it's about the final track, In Stitches, which we're listening to now. And it has a line in it, the crew have killed the captain, but they still can hear his voice. On long walks with my daughter, who is lately full of questions about you. So, to hear this episode, you got to become a patron if you aren't one already. You can do that at patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com click become a patron and uh, you get of course all the other stuff two of these bonus episodes per month access to the facebook group which includes the listener questions that i generally answer at the end of questions uh, end of episodes that is so all right enough about the ad hope you guys will like this patron episode and let me know if you do because that means i get to do more of these david bazan episodes all right back to the episode question you responded who are you to challenge your creator so then our third category inspired the wishy-washy <laughs> far left hippy dippy version so what is I'm, I'm using that tongue-in-cheek because i think i may end up being in that camp so uh what uh what does inspired mean yeah so certainly not by like numbers of people as we were just discussing but i think in terms of like numbers of variations it's possible this is sort of the biggest one yeah because i think this can mean anything from something you know quite close to infallibility to to something that's a a much looser interpretation of a much this this sounds negative but but a a lower view of scripture as the the phrase goes yeah the way i explained it is that the inspired category really emphasizes that scripture is a, a very human book. And yes, it there, it involves divine revelation, but it's very much filtered through through human experiences and, and human error. And, and humans make mistakes, and God does not necessarily override that. A lot of times he, he lets them communicate historical and scientific errors, which the infallibility perspective would agree with. Right. But then the inspired option goes a step further and says theological errors get in there too. There are mischaracterizations of God. There are things that are, are not accurate. So sometimes in this category, you'll have people distinguishing between like the Bible as divine revelation itself or the Bible as a witness, a very human witness to revelation. So maybe like the text itself is not actually God's word. And, and you can certainly point to, to scripture calling Jesus God's word, right? So that, that gets, right. there's a, a, a case there. You're, you're drawing lines, you're try, drawing them where they make, seem to make sense, but it's, it's tricky. So Greg Boyd is your mentor, pastor, you studied with him? <laughs> What's the word? Um, he did the foreword for your book. Technically, none of those. Okay. Yeah, he he did the foreword. So his view is interesting. I think that he would want to say he's an infallibilist, at least. 
But yeah, he, probably. But his description of, for instance, violent passages in the Old Testament where God is described as commanding um, violence, commanding rape, commanding the taking of property and the killing of the Canaanites, passages where God at least implicitly seems okay with child sacrifice as like a tribute for a battle one. Greg wants to say these things are inspired scripture, but they are what you would call negative examples. So they're in there for us to wrestle with and then reject. Uh, In terms of reject the surface meaning, and then take some other maybe allegorical meaning. I hope I'm not messing with this too much. I think that's right. I have scanned his big work on this subject, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, and then I have not had time to go back and read it like as I would like to do. Yeah. And so I'm always a little wary of, I mean, it's a huge book. Yeah. Like, how can you summarize it in a sentence sort of thing? But let's say that what I just said but is sure. right. It's yeah. a negative example. So where does negative example, you know, God-breathed fit? Uh, It's tough. In terms of just sort of the broad category descriptions I've given, it does sound closest to inspired. That said, as you mentioned, I think Greg would probably describe himself as being somewhere in infallibility. And I think that part of the grounds on which he would do that is that if you're coming to these really difficult passages in the Old Testament with an inspired perspective, often, and certainly not always, but often, the solution is, well, those are just wrong. We don't need to, like, really wrestle with them. They're obviously at odds with the character that we see in Jesus. And so, you know, God lets some bad stuff get in there. And that's, you know, it's just not correct. There is no, you know, slaughter of the Canaanites and so on and so forth. And he very much does not, Greg very much does not want to do that. He very much wants to to take those passages seriously and wrestle with them and engage with them. And so that has led to this, you know, enormous book. Um, And so I think that sort of insistence on engagement and not just like writing these things off, that, that approach is more at home in the infallibility camp. But it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, I think you can make a case for either with that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Do do I count as being in the inspired camp if, for instance, I think that one aspect of the text is that it is soaking with patriarchal assumptions about women and homosexuality? I think that it's pointing toward something different than those assumptions, but that the writers themselves did not know that, that the world could move beyond those assumptions, by the way, I think that the patriarchal stuff also relates to slavery um, and actually violence in, in a lot of ways. So let, let's just say there are these assumptions that the biblical authors hold that sometimes this is what's important. Sometimes those cultural assumptions are rendered explicit in the text. Paul saying, I do not permit a woman to teach a man. Peter saying, you know, uppity slaves, basically chill out, obey your masters, uh, submit to them as Christ submits to the, you know to God or whatever. If I think that those are just false, that God never has believed that uh, and does not want anybody, would not prefer anyone actually believe that except maybe as some sort of passage out of something worse to something better. Does that land me in your version of inspired or can I, or can I, is there a way for me to say, well, look, that's not about salvation or basic faith. These are pretty far out in the concentric circles from the center of things and so can I rescue an infallible, obviously inerrancy is not available to me, but what, what do you think? 
I think it's it's very borderline. Every everything say, in my theology is borderline. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that maybe it, it it honestly comes back to something similar to what I was just saying about Greg Boyd and the Old Testament stuff, which is that how you deal with those things maybe is going to be more of the right what what puts you in one position or the other. So, for example, on the Paul's passage, of, I, I do not preach. We recently went through First Corinthians at our church, and the the week that we came to that passage, I was not the one speaking; someone else was speaking. But he made this, I thought, really compelling argument that in the the real egregious part of that passage, Paul is quoting someone else for the purpose of refuting it. Now, of course, Greek does not have punctuation marks, so we can't, like, prove, yeah. prove this, right? But it, it is a way, and I thought a persuasive way, of dealing with that passage that, you know, lets you say, you know, this is in there, this is not the theological truth that God wants us to take away from this, and so, you know, here's how we can read this passage. That strikes me as like a, a pretty infallibility way of dealing with it. Yeah. Like to say, yeah. you know, with this, whereas maybe with the inspired strategy, you might say, you know, Paul probably is actually just saying he doesn't want women to teach because, yeah. you know, he's a first century Jewish dude. And so that's that's the thing that we have to reject because we know that that's not God's best for humanity. You have a couple sort of a note about this, a note about this in your chapter that I, I think are worth going through. And so I'm just going to leave them as prompts for you to say whatever you'd like to say. You have a bit about this phrase, literally true, or the phrase, we read the Bible literally. Yeah. So that one, I, I felt like I had to include because a lot of times people who have what I would call an inerrancy perspective will just sort of in day-to-day conversations say, well, I take the Bible literally. And I get, you know, what they're intending to say. But in practice, this is a real unfortunate way of saying it. And, you know, I think makes the position sound a lot dumber than it is. <laughs> um, right. Because, you know, I think even an inerrantist can, can say, you know, there are parts of the Bible that use figurative language. Like, this is not a, a hard admission yeah. to make, a hard parables. thing to recognize. Yeah, parables. There's... There's very clearly poetic language in, in Psalms and, and Song of Solomon. And so to say, you know, I read the Bible literally when there's a lot of the Bible that even under the most like conservative, inerrant paradigm is clearly not meant to be literal. It just it just doesn't it sounds kind of dumb. Like it's a bad way to say it. Like there are better ways to say that you have a high view of Scripture yeah. and you think that it's super accurate and so to to call it biblical literalism i think just does everyone a disservice is, is a better term there to say i take the bible in its plain sense that would be better yeah, yeah. i think just because the word literal has a meaning and it's not yeah. that <laughs> yeah my my similar gripe is people saying it's not religion it's a relationship mm. to which i say a relationship with god is religion that's just <laughs> what religion means in the dictionary I get what people mean by it. Again, it's like it's not yeah. empty ritual, but right. religion does not is not defined as empty ritual. That's like this particular kind of anti-Catholic Protestant understanding of religion that is just not in the dictionary. And people do not know what you're talking about unless they're also raised in that milieu. Um, the next one you have is sola scriptura, the famous Protestant principle and the, the related solas. What, what do you want to make sure we understand about that? 
we've we've mentioned Luther already, and this is a, a lot of where that comes from. When the Protestant Reformation happens, you know, a lot of the the big early Protestant leaders are saying, you know, we hold to sola scriptura, which means scripture alone, and what they're rejecting in that is things like reason, personal experience, and church tradition as being of similar or even equal authority. And so that was very much a reaction against, you know, sort of the Catholic emphasis on tradition and on the continuing revelation of God through, yeah. you know, the continuity of the Catholic Church. Likewise, the the Orthodox Church, of course, not really involved in the Reformation, but they, they similarly place you know, the, the Bible as one source of authority among others. Church tradition is is part of that as well. And so not not all Protestants are, are doing the sola scriptura thing. Some of them would have something like prima scriptura, which means scripture first. And so that's going to be, you know, more of a mediating position where something like church tradition and, and human reason and, and personal experience do matter and are authoritative, but scripture is, you know, the, the first among not equals. <laughs> um, it's right. it's the, the prime thing uh, yeah. to direct our beliefs. Even the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which comes right. up from time to time, would be a prima scriptura, where yes. it is at the top. So, and then for instance, Richard Rohr has recently re- kind of said his tricycle approach where spiritual experience is at the top and scripture mm-hmm. and tradition or scripture and reason are the other two bits of the triangle that would not even be prima scriptura. Right. Yeah. And I think you're going to find the ones that tend to value um, personal experience and reason more highly are going to be more inspired. And then in the infallibility camp, you may get prima scriptura or you may get that strong emphasis on 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 tradition as well. Right. In a more in a more Catholic situation. Right. Yes. And so I was just going to just to conclude this. If you're sola scriptura, then are, do you have to be inerrantist? Or or I suppose yeah, if, um, if you're inerrantist, then you're going to be sola scriptura. But maybe if pro- you're sola scriptura, right. you could be infallible. Yes, I think that's fair. That's probably the direction that it flows. Yeah. This could be its own episode, so we'll keep it short. But you, hmm. you do talk a little bit about how we got the canon of the Bible we have today. In, in terms of this question of inerrancy, inspiration, infallibility... What's important to know about how we ended up with this collection of books? I mean, I think the the main thing is that there's sort of this popular idea that it, it's just all kind of arbitrary and, you know, some guys just sat down and made a list and right. were like, look, here's what it is and you just have to accept it and we decided. And that's that's not the, <laughs> the history. And so I think knowing that it, it was a, a slow process, a process that significantly happened by consensus and a process that I think, you know, Christians in, in any of these interpretive categories can say was directed by the Holy Spirit. You know, the extent to which you think that direction happens might might vary, right? But certainly there there is divine involvement in this, in, in guiding that consensus. I mean, I called it a canon, but it's actually canons. There are different canons mm-hmm. and different branches of Christianity. Most of us know that Catholics have the Apocrypha, but also when you get to like Ethiopian Orthodox and certain Orthodox branches, there's there's bigger differences. What explains that fact that that actually the Church Universal has not agreed on all the books to be included? Yeah, so we've always agreed on um, pretty much the New Testament. 
is from the time that that was canonized, and then, you know, the 39-book Old Testament that everybody has, and then there are these other books that vary quite a bit. And so the, the short version is that if you go back into, like, the very early church writings, what people tend to be saying is, these other books are very valuable and useful for spiritual instruction, and they have important, like, theology in them, but they're not quite scripture, and this shorter list is, is what we would consider scripture proper. And so that's why they're sometimes called deuterocanonical, which just means second canon. They're sort of, they're close, but they're second tier. And that continues for a long time until the Protestant Reformation happens, and the Protestants are like, no, just get rid of all that. That's not part of the Bible, so we're not going to have this messy double canon system. And then in response, the Catholic Church in particular sort of was solidified its commitment to those books and sort of bumped up their rank from what it was before. And then these, these other smaller branches of the Eastern Church, they tend to be close to what the Catholics have, but there'll be a, a few book differences. Just oftentimes the Ethiopian Church is, is quite ancient and to some extent would have been a little bit more isolated, right, from the rest of the, the right. Mediterranean world. Geographically, and so they, yeah. Yeah, and so they end up with this slightly different list. So yeah, a, a lot of the sort of solidification of differences was in, you know, mutual reactions to each other and then, you know, drawing of battle lines during the Reformation era. That can be a little unsettling for people, right? To yeah. I think people say this a lot when they go to Bible college or seminary or even Christian college that they're like, wait, like there's not total agreement on this. And like <laughs> politics were involved in, in some of these books. Like, I mean, we ended up with the same gospels and sort of the, the central stuff, but it does upset people to learn that, like, politicking was a part of canonization. And I think it's most upsetting if you are coming from an inerrancy perspective, right. where, you know, obviously the what books are included is going to have a big effect on, like, the accuracy of the, <laughs> the content. Um, from an infallible perspective, and then, and then, of course, from an inspired perspective as well, I think it's a lot less troubling, especially because those extra books that that are in the Catholic and Orthodox canons, there's not really any major doctrines that hinge on that. So if you don't have the Apocrypha, if you don't have these secondary books, you still have everything sufficient for faith and practice. Right. Interestingly, they may be God-breathed and useful for teaching, you know, all the stuff that Paul <laughs> says, and yes, that's still not the same thing be. as saying they're necessary for salvific change. True, yes. It's it's interesting. Paul sets actually kind of a low bar in that yeah. regard for what he actually says about Scripture. Yeah. So I have these awesome patrons. They support the show financially, and they are a part of this Facebook group. And I thought this would be a, a really good interview for which to field questions from them. And we got some really interesting ones. So we're going to go through these. And then after those, we're going to get your view and maybe I'll figure out finally where I land uh, <laughs> before we end. So the first one is this. Does infallibility or inerrancy entail that the early Christians were correct in all of their decisions on which books to include and which to exclude? We, we sort of just got to this, right? It seems like inerrancy, would, they would need to be correct, and then there's a, a problem. I mean, I think it even for inerrancy, I, I kind of want to say yes and no. Okay. Um, yes, in the sense that as you move closer towards inerrancy on this spectrum, it becomes more and more important that, you know, we definitely got the exact right books. But also no, in the sense that 
we are accepting this canon not just because we trust the early Christians, but because we trust, you know, the Holy Spirit guided it. Right. There is a certain trust that, that is required there, but it's not it's not necessarily in the early Christians. You do have some weird stuff to figure out with the Apocrypha and, the, you know, like, on what basis do you say that the Ethiopian church is wrong? And, you know, it does get a little complicated, but it's maybe not totally defeating of the worldview. Yes, I think so. Next one. How do we deal with disagreements in early manuscripts? For instance, scribal errors or redactions. How does inerrancy or an infallibility address later editions, such as the long ending of Mark or the woman taken in adultery? Both of those perspectives, I think, would tend to say, you know, the the sorts of, of errors and changes are not significant enough to, to really you know, to derail us from from following Jesus, certainly. You know, even if we don't have the long ending of Mark, it's it's not a Jesus didn't rise from the dead right. ending, right? It's not a denial. And we have, yeah. and we have three other Gospels that, that say that he does at, at great length. Likewise, the woman caught in adultery story, like it's a good story, but I don't think that, you know, we, we have to throw everything out if we can't keep that. And so I think, you know, responsible scholars Scholarship is is super important across these views, and and being careful to with translations to note this this text is questionable, this text is debatable. We have manuscripts that say different things on this, and and hopefully that hopefully our relationship to scripture is such that reading those notes is not gonna like you know cause a crisis for us that that we can recognize that this is an ancient book and that we're we're doing the best we can to get the best and most accurate you know translation and version but sometimes we have to say there's some so a little bit of ambiguity here i guess on that question the inerrantist would just have to say that like there is a right answer it, it's in the original manuscript and we just don't have access to that anymore did the authors of the Bible view their own work as inerrant or as infallible or as inspired? And how do we answer that? Oh, man, I don't know if we can answer that. We have cases where there's pretty clearly like a conscious recording of uh, divine messages or of like theological history, right? Well, the prophets so, all the right, time, exactly. like I went into the, the presence of the Lord and Yahweh and told me to And here's what he this. said, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, we have things like Chronicles where it's it's this very much a theological history. So they're like recording what happened, but they're also clearly putting it in like a, an explanation built into that. And so with things like that, it, it seems like maybe we can say, you know, maybe this person in some sense thought that they were writing what we would now call scripture. With other things, it's much less clear-cut in that regard. Even in the New Testament, someone like Luke, where he says, you know, I did this research and I'm trying to to give this reliable account for you at the start of his gospel. That strikes me as different from, you know, Paul writing Timothy a letter. So, yeah, I don't know that we can make, it, from any of the perspectives, I don't know that we can make a blanket statement about what the the human writers thought that they were doing or how they thought that they were doing it. And in some sense, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, isn't the question of scriptural interpretation, it's a pneumatological question. It's a question about our doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And what's at stake here is whether or not the Holy Spirit, in some meaningful way, protected or helped us choose or, you know, kept from error or didn't keep from error these texts. So if you, like, if you're an inerrantist and you think that God made sure there's no errors. It doesn't really matter what they thought. 
If you're an infallibist, then you think that the Holy Spirit ensure that there's enough there for faith and salvation and life of faith. If you're an inspirationist, it doesn't matter what they thought because you know you know what I mean. Like it, it's sort of on any of these. It doesn't it doesn't really matter what the authors themselves thought unless it was going to be they thought it was so opposite of you know how we're taking it. That might be a problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess we can imagine scenarios where it it, it might matter, but but generally speaking, I, I don't think it. I don't think it's knowable, and I don't think it'll make much of a difference. Um, To bridge with your Chronicles point, another question, does one book of the Bible ever argue against the philosophy or worldview of another book of the Bible, such as Job arguing against Deuteronomy? And then personally, I would like to add, Dan, as Pete Enns writes about the fact that Deuteronomy and Chronicles modify much of what is in the book of Exodus. It's... It's a hard question to answer, and I think how you answer it is going to depend a lot on, like, the inerrantist says no, right? Yeah, um, the inerrantist that, sort of has one. to say no, yeah. Yeah. Spoiler, I'm an infallibilist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I don't, so I'm, I'm not going to say, like, a, an easy no like that. Sometimes something like what the inerrantist wants to do may be right, like the James and Galatians example that we were discussing earlier. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think there is actually such a, a big, difficult contradiction between these two as there might seem at first glance. Sure. There, at the very least, I would say there are very there are different perspectives. Are they necessarily like contradictory when you've done all the proper like genre and interpretive work? That's more debatable. I don't know. I don't know if yeah. we can say that quickly in a responsible way. <laughs> well, w- what we can say is that if you are convinced that there are true disagreements, then there may be room for you still in infallibility, depending on what you mean by salvation and life of faith. Yes. Right. So if, if, for instance, you think, as I think, that Chronicles and Kings or whatever the two main stories of Israel, like I think that they are mutually incompatible historically. They just are literally telling things different because they have a different theological agenda. Mm-hmm. And so they're not thinking of history the way we would, where it's exact. And, and so you cannot reconcile them historically. Then I could still be an infallibilist and say, but that's not part of being saved. Like that's not... You know, you can get the enough of the gist of who God is and who Israel was with either of those accounts enough to set up the Messiah. And and so that might not even be a problem as an infallibilist. And then certainly if you are just hold the inspiring view, inspired view, then you're going to expect a bunch of uh, errors yeah. and, and, and tensions and whatnot. And maybe my my hesitancy to say like contradiction as opposed to difference or tension, both of which I find far more comfortable, is an artifact of, you know, growing up in (laughs) in an errantist context. It might be. Um, I think that they're really, I really think it's just semantics. I mean, you know. So, okay. Uh, Next question. Does it matter if the Bible itself is inerrant? If our understanding of and interpretation of the Bible as human beings is fallible? (laughs) Like, does it even matter? Yeah. Um... That's an interesting question. It is an interesting question. So, you know, the the fallibility of our interpretation is something that, like, a sophisticated inerrantist will emphasize. Like, to say that just because, you know, we're reading something some way does not mean that we got it right. It just means that it the rightness was there. We maybe didn't right. get it. <laughs> um, yeah. Wait, so that's interesting. So, so on the one hand, you could use this line of reasoning to make an inerrancy argument and say... 
look, you're never going to realize that it's inerrant totally because your t- your reason is too messed up. That's kind of like a reformed argument mm-hmm. of, of you know the effects of sin on our reason. But I I thought that this question was saying the opposite, which is like, what's the point of even saying that the Bible is perfect if we know for sure that we'll never know the perfect thing about it? So there's kind of two ways you could take this. Yeah, yeah, and I. <sighs> I mean, I can I can see either being compelling, right? Um, totally. <laughs> I I lean towards saying it 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 does matter, and of course I'm not an inerrantist, but I lean towards saying it it does matter that we do as <laughs> as much as we can to determine like what is, what truth is being communicated here. Yeah, and so it, there's a sense in which it, it it's futile in that you know our we are finite we are fallible we're not going to know the full truth of god's revelation even if the inspired people are right and it's pretty limited divine revelation in this text we're still probably not going to get it all exactly right. right in this lifetime right but but it's sort of like a you you have to to care and press on and be looking for that insofar as you're able even even with that recognition that that it's not going to ever be as exact and, and complete as we would like. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I, I have two more thoughts on this. This is a really an, an interesting question. So on the one hand, it would matter if there are two sources of error or one source of error. That would help you sort of figure out right, it's like the it's text the and me or just it's just me. me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that would be helpful. But then it, it also gets to this thing of like, where the question is coming from, and I, I don't mean to impugn the asker of the question, but it, it there's a way in which this question could be understood as coming from this kind of nervous need for certainty. Like, mm. if it's not going to be totally certain, then what the hell is the point anyway? So then I want to ask, why do we need that certainty? What are we expecting from the text? You, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it, it's tough, like you said, because of the, the two very different ways in which the question can be read. Yeah, it's maybe more difficult to to avoid an unhealthy desire for certainty when you're coming from an inerrantist position. But I think even there, you can avoid it um, by you know allowing for things like like right. the fallibility of our interpretation and, and the possibility of right. error in transmission. And right. so. Yeah, yeah, I was just I, thinking I think even that, in... that certainty is something to be very much guarded against. And this is something that, you know, folks in the inspired camp, I think, are very good at warning about is that reliance on or obsession with certainty, um, that obsession with exactitude. And I think in some cases it can even tend towards I think the phrase is, is bibliolatry, like right. idolizing the Bible over God, um, where it's, it's so focused on getting this text exactly right. You know, I was just even yeah, I was thinking that, like, even if you're an inerrantist, there's something kind of beautiful and helpful about the fact that people are still fallible so that you, even in that tradition, there ought to be something sort of bringing some humility. Uh, and, and so to say, would it, yeah, it, it still matters. Last patron question. I'd love to hear her thoughts slash interpretation of Jeremiah 8.8, 8, which, which says, how can you say we are wise for we have the law of the Lord? When actually the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely. That's interesting because that seems to be talking about the Torah probably. So yeah, there, is, there, is. is Jeremiah um, saying that the Torah is full of errors? So I think you could read it that way. I think you could also, and I'm by no means an expert on Jeremiah, but I think you could argue that the the scribes in question are not necessarily the scribes who wrote down right. the words of the prophet so much as they are like 
the religious leaders who are now interpreting this for you and doing their commentary and, and, and midrash even, or whatever the case may be. Yeah. So I, I don't think that the only way of reading this is that the lies are in the scriptural text as opposed to the commentary and instruction around it. Yeah. Um, oh, that's cool. So that's, that's one possibility. Yeah. Handled it falsely yeah. is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds that, like interpretation that a and distinction, teaching. Yeah, 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 between the text itself and the location of the lies. But I'm not like you know super confident that that's what is going on there. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, that's an interesting question. So that's the end of the uh, the patron questions, and and that means that now we can finally get a we you you already tipped your hat. You're <laughs> an infallibilist, but but let's can you explain why and and what you think that does for you and and why that you know where why you land there yeah so for me as i mentioned this was a move from inerrancy to infallibility and a lot of the reason for that move had to do with realizing a lot of what we talked about at the beginning the idea of like this precision that i expect in sort of my daily life is just very foreign. It's a foreign expectation to the way that they thought about what they were doing. And so to be asking something of the text that I don't think was ever really in view for its human authors and, and to an extent, I would say to to its, its divine author, I mean, God knew what sort of people he was using and working with to write this. That doesn't seem like a a very faithful way of handling scripture to me. Like the inerrancy view is intended as a a sort of respect and a high view of scripture. And I recognize that and I don't want to impugn people's motives, but I think in practice, having these unrealistic and anachronistic expectations is not actually very respectful of it. And so I would still say that I have a pretty high view of scripture. I'd probably say that I have like a a prima scriptura perspective in terms of like yeah. ranking the authority. But and and yeah, infallibility also I think and we've touched on this a lot, in some ways it just resolves a lot of <laughs> difficult issues by comparison. Like I don't have to try to harmonize these little details that differ in the gospel. I don't have to try to harmonize, you know, Chronicles and Kings. I can say there's truth being communicated here by God, especially in these passages that are so core to to our faith and to salvation. And if there are details that don't fit well with modern science or that don't make sense historically, even with other parts of the Bible, that doesn't matter. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting to note and we should study it and maybe we'll We'll find some some further revelation of truth from that study, but that's not you know the the point or the intention of the text. That's great. I think I I want to. I feel like I want to locate myself now. It's the the call is is too <laughs> strong, and I I think I would I, you could I could maybe get away with a softer infallibilist mm-hmm. position if I lean really heavily into necessary and sufficient for salvation and a life of faith. Partly I can do that because I'm, I lean pretty heavily universalist. So I think that people don't need much at all for salvation, but even life of faith, that'd be the more thing to consider. And yeah, I mean, I I certainly don't think people need more than scripture to like live a Christian life and live a life uh, that is God honoring. So that's where I'd want to say I'm an infallibilist, but I'd also lean pretty heavily into the incomplete aspect of the scriptural revelation as opposed to what we will eventually be revealed as God's full revelation at the end of all things. And, and one way I've, I've heard people or read people talk about this is uh, recently I'm, I'm reading John Hott's book, the new cosmic story. 
and he talks about sort of different modes of sort of religious expectation. And I'm not going to remember the words. They all start with A. But what, <laughs> but basically the, the traditional Christian view is, is some version of like, there is divine revelation. It was given. It's pretty much good to go as it is. And our job is to get in line with it. And then he, he contrasts it with his view, which is a, like an anticipatory model. And it's, it's really influenced by evolutionary science and um, really just kind of all the sciences. And I think I, I'm, I'm finding myself leaning towards that view where it's like, no, like the fact that there is progression, like that continues. And like in a world that is constantly changing, that has constantly new possibilities that the God of love is making available to us as fresh possibilities in every new instant. So that kind of a thing is just going to probably put me more, if I fleshed it all out, I'd probably end up being more in the inspired category, not to impugn the text, but just like, I'm just still expecting more and, and stuff like slavery and women. And for me, homosexuality, like are, are sort of evidences that it is, we're, we're on a bit more of a trajectory uh, and, and we ought to anticipate even being more wrong about stuff that we thought we were right about as time yeah. goes along. We don't know which ones and the, it's always discernment and that's uncomfortable and that's uncertain. So I feel like I've, I've talked for a while now. No. And I, I, I think again, so much of it gets back to the, the, the Holy spirit and like, what is the spirit's role in not just shaping the text that we ha- as we have it now, but in how we're interpreting it and how we have interpreted it for centuries. There are things now where, you know, I think we would all say there's this clear scriptural trajectory towards rejection of slavery, even though, you know, we see passages that, that clearly accept it as a fact of mm-hmm. ancient Near Eastern life. The, you know, the spirit was moving in this direction and, and we, we can see that movement and be part of that movement. But of course, on other issues, we're, we're much less comfortable saying that. Sure. Um, and it's, and it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to say, like, when is it a legitimate case of, of the spirit is revealing this direction to us? And when is it, you know, we'd like to change our minds on this. And the spirit sounds like a good excuse. <laughs> no, yeah. And, and that's the discernment that is always difficult. I guess maybe a way that I have realized I could say this, given our conversation, is I'll see your high view of scripture and I'll raise you a high view of the Holy Spirit. Oh, man. It, it's that's... kind of how I'm thinking of it. <laughs> Where where I, I really feel like the, the yeah. thing I have a really high view of, if I'm honest, mm-hmm. I have a much higher view of the creator of a universe of billions of galaxies ability to bring things to a good end than I do have confidence in like the verbal inspiration of any particular text. And so that's and that's kind of a direction I've been heading for a long time is is really emphasizing God's love and the and people's experience of God's love either directly or through the love of neighbor and 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 whatever and and the stewardship of creation over kind of litigating the truth value and I, now I'm being a little bit unfair but no but I, you I think you're right that it, for our culture at least it is probably generally going to be easier to discuss you know like how exactly should we think about this book than to discuss like what's the holy spirit up to because you know like it's it's nebulous it's debatable it's confusing there's not like this physical thing to talk about and so yeah it's it's a harder conversation to have for us and i don't think that's the case everywhere all all Christians, but I think it is for us. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And when I say the Holy Spirit, just to be clear, 
I don't know what I think about sort of like Pentecostalism and the gifts of the Spirit. I just mean the Holy Spirit as the Trinitarian idea of the way that God is present in our world with us in time. Yeah. Around us. So, um, yeah. Well, Bonnie, uh, so great. I wanted to mention before we go, there are some discussion questions at the end of your chapter on this. And so if people want to use this interview as a discussion board for either a small group or get beers with somebody, get some coffee and talk about this, I'm going to list those questions in the show notes of the episode. Uh, they're good. And they're really just like a nice way to take all this content and, and actually flesh it out for your own story and your own beliefs. Sort of like we allowed ourselves to do here. And so I would encourage people to see that. And uh, I think we'll be seeing you again because this, this is the book that keeps on giving to a show like this. <laughs> well, thank you. I would, I would enjoy that. And of course, there'll be a link to the book uh, on Amazon in the show notes. So Bonnie, we'll, we'll talk to you again in a few months on some other topic. Once I, once I get inspired uh, <laughs> as to which one we should choose. Sounds good. Thank you. Okay, as promised, Tim's patron question about conversations. Now, his question was longer than the version I quoted at the beginning of the episode. I will now read the full question, which has some more kind of interesting nuance to it. Here's Tim's question. How do you navigate conversations with conservative friends or family as you deconstruct? I can't keep my mouth shut, and inevitably I freak people out. They suggest I'm on the slippery slope and so on. How do you more carefully approach these conversations and or how do you determine if someone can even have a real conversation? I've had people sound open to it, but then totally freak out. Well, thank you for the question, Tim. And uh, I certainly can relate to this. Uh, I have had many instances where I have not followed even my own advice that I'm about to give you here and just thought, gosh, why can't I keep my mouth shut? So I very much relate to this question. It's obviously far too big of a question for one person to answer. There's a lot of dynamics here. So I'm not totally going to be able to answer this, but I think I can share some stuff that I've learned surrounding this question that has helped me a lot. Um, step one, do you have someone you know that you can talk to about this stuff openly and without judgment? Find this person or these people first and make sure you're not trying to like make a family member or a pastor or a former church friend to be this person in a way that they can't really be for you right now. This person might even be a non-Christian, if you don't currently know any Christians, who can sit comfortably in this tension with you. So that's that's step one. That if you do have someone that you can talk with, then that might make it possible for you to not need to talk about it with family or friends that can't handle it, uh, especially if that might end up causing some division, which of course it can. Okay, so step two, which is kind of getting to the actual conversation here, the actual question. I believe that we should be thinking more carefully about how exactly people change their minds and why people believe things. I'm going to say that again. We should be thinking more carefully about how exactly people change their minds and why people believe things that they believe. I think if we can keep these questions in mind 
as we consider when and how to talk about these faith changes, it can help us to avoid a lot of mistakes. Uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm taking a lot of what I'm about to say from the work of Jonathan Haidt, whose book, The Righteous Mind, was sort of like my origin of species, meaning it opened things up for me in that momentous of a way. If you've not read this book, that's my real answer, is go read The Righteous Mind immediately. I can't imagine thinking about politics, culture war, ongoing incivility without thinking through the lens of this book. Um, so, as I said, how people change their minds, why people believe things. First, why people believe things. I'm going to sort of do a bastardized version of Jonathan Haidt's rider and elephant analogy here. So the way that he says it, a human mind or a human person, a willful person, a thinking person could be separated into roughly two parts of our mind or brain, the rider and the elephant. The rider sits on top of the elephant. It is small. It can direct things. It can aim a spear. It can chart a course. The elephant is most of us or most of our brain, most of our mind. It is slow and lumbering. It dictates if it wants to lean one way, that's the way we're going to go. And the rider has some control over the elephant, but the elephant has quite a bit of control over the rider as well. Uh, these two parts of ourselves, rider and elephant, also map onto Daniel Kahneman's phrases, systems one and two thinking. System one thinking is the automatic processes that allow us to drive a car and talk to someone at the same time uh, that make it so that we don't have to like try and figure out what this thing is in front of us. We just know that it's a chair and that we could sit in the chair. So system one is like most of what our brain does and it's mostly below the conscious surface level. That's the elephant. And then the rider is system two. That is like deliberative, logical reasoning. So that's what lawyers or if you're on a jury, you have to use uh, you have to use system two. Or if someone says, hey, uh, what do you think about sending your kid to a charter school? You're probably not going to have a system one or elephant answer to that unless you've spent a lot of time in charter schools or thinking about them or learning about them. You have to go, oh, you know, I, I got to think about that. Now you're using the rider. You're using system one or system two thinking rather. So the thing about. For instance, political discourse on Facebook is you have these two riders who are yelling at each other and they think that they're going to convince each other by giving arguments and giving data and linking to articles by authority figures that they each respectively trust. Uh, but what Jonathan Haidt says is that doesn't work because in order to really change someone's mind, you don't change the rider, you change the elephant. And the reason for that is that for most people, most of the time, the reasons they give for a position that they hold are not the real reasons they hold it. The rider, by default, acts as a kind of lawyer for the elephant, coming up with post hoc justifications after the fact. An example he gives that I've slightly changed to my own life that I think works well is, is this one. I tell my wife, Jaffrey, I will do these dishes before you get home. She gets home at 5.30, the dishes are not done. She says, hey, you said you'd do the dishes. I respond with, ah, I was going to do them, but this thing happened and this thing happened. I'm sorry. Now, what I'm saying in that moment is I am the kind of person who does the dishes when I say I will do them. But here's this piece of evidence. 
but I didn't do the dishes and I said I would do them. Rather than admitting I'm the kind of person who does not always do the dishes, even when he says he will do them, I come up with a reason that I am really the right kind of person. Something got in the way this time. But the real reason I didn't do the dishes is that they were not as high of a priority as the other stuff I did, the other stuff that came up. I could have done them much earlier before that stuff came up if it was really important to me. So we shield from ourselves our true selves, like our true motivations. For instance, 81% of evangelicals voting for Trump or even 90% of African-American Christians voting for Hillary, it's not because it's all about they really agree with their policies. There, there's a lot of factors. There's tribal loyalty. Uh, there's groupthink. There is something about the presentation of a candidate that appeals to someone at a gut level. These things are all involved. But we want to tell ourselves that all of our beliefs are because we've really thought them through. And this is the argument. Why do I believe in there is a historical Adam? Because, uh, you know, there has to be one for Paul's first as in Adam, all sin, so in Christ, all, all made there. A few people might really believe it for that reason, but there's also reasons of like, I went to a reformed seminary and I t- was taught this. Or here's a better one. I had a professor who I really loved and who was really generous to me, and he taught that a historical Adam was necessary for salvation, and I'm inclined to agree with him. Now, that's not, there's nothing really sad about that or immoral but we look up to people, they believe things, we're more likely to believe them. But that's not the rider, that's the elephant. That's what's important to remember. So, when you are going through faith changes, you are having to engage the rider a bunch because you have these problems and you go, oh, I can't make sense of this anymore. My elephant had a response to this, but then this thing happened, my kid was gay, this person died. I started, I realized I had panic attacks about hell, anxiety, whatever the thing is, and I had to engage my writer, my system too, to really think through this. Now, the people you are talking to, if they are going to be really upset by what you've said, the chances are they have not had to use their writer or their system too to think through this stuff. They've not had that experience, or perhaps they're choosing not to engage that from some sense of security that they need. I mean, you should have compassion in this situation. There's could be a lot of reasons that that's happening. But I think it's helpful to understand this distinction between the rider and the elephant. So the question you should be asking yourself about your parent, your uncle, your friend, your sibling, don't ask them this, but you should ask yourself in your own mind, what is it that they are leaning toward? What is it that they love? What is it that they are committed to? And then think about, what it is that you've come to believe that's different from what you once believed. Maybe you believe in evolution now, or you question question penal substitutionary atonement, or you recognize discrepancies in the Bible or something like that. Take the opposite belief of the new thing you hold, that your loved one still holds, and frame it in terms of their loves, their commitments, their leanings. Perhaps they disbelieve in evolution because they believe that human beings are special, created in the image of God, And they think that evolution would make this false. So maybe instead of talking about evolution or the, you know, the data, you talk about the image of God, if you can talk about that. Perhaps they hold to inerrancy because they have a high view of the love and power of God. Can you find something in that to resonate with? And can you talk about that? Which leads to the second point. So that was 
how, uh, what, why people believe what they believe. This is how people actually change their minds. From my reading and experience, it seems that people change their minds in one of two ways. Number one, it happens relatively quickly because they have had some great suffering, a death, a divorce or separation, a diagnosis, an accident, an excommunication, a child coming out as gay, etc. In these cases, we are forced to radically reconsider our previous beliefs all in a flash. We have to engage our writer because the elephant is not working anymore. The other way that people change their minds is slowly and incrementally. And you might already be thinking these are not necessarily mutually exclusive. You might have an incident and then slowly work out the implications over a period of years. And if you've gone through a period of significant deconstruction, how long was that period? It probably took a while, right? At each point in that period, how open were you to the next little bit, the next change, the next belief to go or to be reinterpreted? At a conference, I once heard James K.A. Smith respond to an audience question saying something like, each of us can probably only reach people a little to this side of us and a little to that side. And then the next person can reach the person to that side and the next person can reach the person to that side. Now, he was talking about politics and social questions and interacting on Facebook, but I think it's true in a lot of ways. And there's no reason to think that's not also true on the spectrum of doctrinal beliefs, for instance. Some of the things that I now believe my mom just will not be convinced of. They are too far from what she's been committed to her whole life. She loves me unconditionally. She knows that I love God. She doesn't question my intellect or my faith, but she just can't get there. And we have a good relationship and we talk about this stuff. So I'm, I'm not saying that is some character flaw for her. It's not. It's just like there might be three other close friends of hers. If they say something similar to what I say over the next few years, then all of a sudden that's going to seem more plausible to her. I just think this is how our brains work. And it's a good thing if you can get yourself to think about it and adjust your expectations as a result. I mean, what would like what would life be like if people could change their minds incredibly fast? How easy would it be for a dictator to sweep through a country with some particularly alluring message? You know, my wife and I are watching Game of Thrones right now, and there's a subplot where the stubborn and old-fashioned people of the North are always suspicious of Southerners. That's frustrating for Southerners, but it also forces characters who are from the South to make very compelling cases for whatever it is that they're pushing and to be patient. It's easy to see that there are strengths and weaknesses here in this fact of how our brains work. And I think that's fine. And that's just the way it is. We, but we could, we should, and we can adjust our expectations for our loved ones accordingly. One last thought about how people change their minds. It's usually not through giving better arguments. Back to the rider and elephant. The rider thinks logically about arguments, but the rider isn't in control very often. The elephant leans toward things it leans toward. When a bunch of people that we like and respect believe something or volunteer for some project, that is when we are likely to do the same. It's kind of like friendship evangelism. If you ever heard that phrase growing up where you're supposed to make converts to Christianity not through beating them over the head with doctrine and pamphlets, but by being their friend and loving them and showing them that Christianity is worth joining. 
Whatever you think about proselytizing, that principle works. It's based on sound psychological realities. We change slowly and we change because we are more attracted to some people or group of people that believe something than we are attracted to the other person or the other group of people that believe the opposite thing. So that's my slightly half-baked and very derivative answer to a very difficult question that really deserves multiple episodes or a podcast of its own. Um, and I am continuing to look for people that I can interview for this. So far, I haven't had much luck. I'm still looking. If you have any ideas for someone who has written or teaches on this particular question of how to use psychology uh, to adjust our expectations and adjust our behaviors for how to talk to family and friends about uh, deconstruction and reconstruction, please send their names my way uh, because this is a question that I get a lot and I think about a lot. All right. Well, that is all for our episode today. In the outro, or rather in the show notes, I've got those group questions from Bonnie's book and a link to her book and all the normal stuff. For instance, let me know if you guys like this uh, Q&A thing that I've been doing here. And let me know if you like the Bazan in Stitches patron episode, because I really want to do more of those. If you do, email me about anything you have permission podcast at gmail.com become a patron if you want those bonus episodes if you want to ask the questions that i answer at the end or help me write questions for the guests that i interview uh, and just be engaged in that ongoing discussion there um, and please share these episodes with people they are meant to be a resource i'd love to know how it goes and yeah i'm just so grateful for all of this stuff see you guys next week